This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where hundreds of researchers make new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber scientists. Learn more about their momentum at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. Here's a challenge for you. Can you decipher what this says? No clue, right? Let's hear it again. This mystery recording came to us from Jayatri Das. She is chief bioscientist at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia, and it was part of an exhibit on the brain. Okay, now we'll hear the real sentence. The Constitution Center is at the next stop. Does it make sense that time? It does. It does. But it sounds totally different once you know what it means. Like, it's not even the same recording, even though it is. So how is that possible? It's the exact same sentence. Your brain is always using prior information to make sense of new information coming in. So once you know what the sentence is, when you go back and hear the distorted version, you can apply that information and it makes sense. That's what our brains do in fractions of seconds, all day long, every day. Processing sounds and language, reading text, taking in sensory information, and making sense of it all. It allows us to learn, to work, to form relationships, to navigate the world. On today's episode, we'll take a closer look at that process of digesting information, specifically language. When we're listening or reading, how do the words enter our brains and form meaning? And what gets in the way sometimes? So Jayatri Das from the Franklin Institute played that audio clip that went from gibberish to clear after we knew what it actually said. And this is a good example of the work our brains are doing all day long. So in this case, it's sound, right? So it's coming into our ears. It travels to the thalamus, which is kind of that central processing hub of the brain. And then it goes out to a different part of your brain where your brain starts to assign meaning to it. But all of these processes go both what scientists call bottom-up and top-down. So bottom-up is thinking about those individual bits of sensory information coming from the world and building them into something that makes sense. At the same time, that can be overwhelming with the amount of sensory information coming in. And so your brain is looking for ways to attach that new information to something it already knows. Um, And that's top-down processing. You're always trying to fit new information into a framework that you already have. Let's say I see an apple on my desk. That's bottom-up processing. The stimulus, the apple, influences my perception. But then I assign meaning to it with my background knowledge. That's top-down processing. Oh, maybe this looks like a honey crisp. And probably my coworker put the apple there because I know she went apple picking yesterday. That kind of thing. Jayatri says your brain is constantly shaped by your experiences, forming new connections through everything you're learning in your environment from the moment you're born. Your brain is never the same from one second to the next. And over time, as you're developing through infancy, through toddlerhood, there's so many new experiences you're getting every day. 
And so your brain is rapidly learning which information is important and what to hang on to, and then getting rid of the cells, the connections that relate to information that isn't that important. So the database, we continue to build it all the time? Does it stop? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So all the time we're, we're putting more information in there and just building more connections. That's right. So you're not only just building the database, though, but you're also kind of prioritizing which parts of the database are important. Uh, And that's a process that is, we can really imagine how that grows and shapes over time. Um, Because the information that's important to you as a little kid, right, okay, so let me figure out how to ride my bike. That becomes second nature by the time you're good at it. And so that kind of goes into the background. We think of it as more intuitive. So you're always kind of reshaping what is rising to the top of your attention. Is there a maximum capacity in our heads somewhere? I mean, it feels like that every day. But is there a point where we cannot process any more information? Does something else have to get deleted? That's a good question. Like, what is the process of forgetting, right? We often think of the best analogy to our brains as a computer, but maybe that's not such a great analogy because, like, a computer has, you know, a certain terabyte hard drive, you know, that has an upper limit. But our brain is always plastic. It's like this idea of change. So just because we might forget it doesn't mean it's gone forever. If it becomes relevant again, maybe we pull that information back out and it's still there. People have many differences in terms of how they process information, how quickly they are able to process information and retain it. Is any of that visible if we look at a brain in a scan or not? That is a million-dollar question. (laughs) You know, trying to understand the cognitive differences between the diverse brains that make up humanity. You know, we have some clues. You know, there are places where you can see the connectivity between someone's brain is different from the connectivity in somebody else's. Do we know really what that means and how it maps to differences in what we might think at a higher level of just how one person thinks to another person thinks, there's a lot to learn there. That's Jayatri Das. She is chief bioscientist at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. It's a science museum and center for research and science education. We're talking about how we process information. Here's something that happens to me all of the time. I'm reading a book or an article, chugging along, and then I realize that maybe I'm looking at these words, I'm moving my eyes along the page, but I have no idea what I just read. Really taking in the information requires a lot of focus, and when I do that, I move at a much slower speed. This same issue was the Achilles heel for one graduate student, who then discovered a surprising hack. Jad Slayman has more. If you want PhD after your name, you're going to have to do a lot of reading. Between five or 600, 700 pages per week, which is pretty impossible a lot of times. That's Michael Menya, a PhD candidate studying linguistic anthropology. 
Michael couldn't keep up. He couldn't really read for more than 10 minutes at a time. And on top of that, the stuff he had to read wasn't exactly Harry Potter. Academic texts are often extremely dense. A lot of the words you don't understand. It sounds it it feels like learning a different language for the first time. Michael felt like he was drowning in all of it. A lot of times the length of the sentences themselves are absurd, you know, and having to restart a really long sentence over and over again can be kind of demoralizing. The text that pushed him to the edge was a book by French philosopher Michel Foucault. He would probably consider himself a historian of ideas. So he basically traces the emergence of some kind of idea, like let's say the idea of government or governing. La question du pouvoir avait été relativement marginalisée. Michael says reading Foucault was especially hard because the philosopher made up a lot of his own words. He has so many keywords. Discontinuity. Apparatus. The arts of existence. That rely on other keywords. Non-reductionism. History of the present. Discursive formation. Pastoral power. To even try to define. So if you if you're tr- if you get stuck on this one Foucault keyword, a lot of times it's because you don't know another Foucault keyword somewhere else, like the word uh, juridico discursivo something or other. He's not kidding. Try this text on for size. It's from Foucault, The Birth of the Clinic. The disappearance of voluntary movements and reduced activity in the... (laughs) All right, it's pretty hard to read. The disappearance of voluntary movements and reduced activity in the internal or external sense organs form the general outline that emerges beneath such particular forms as apoplexy, syncope, or paralysis. Then, Michael found he could download an audiobook version of the Foucault text he was supposed to be reading. I realized, wow, I know exactly how long it's going to take me to read this book. Like, you could see the countdown uh, on the audiobook. It will take me, you know, six and a half hours to read this book. And that gave me so much peace because I knew how to schedule in the reading into my everyday life. Like, okay... Two hours here, two hours here, two hours here. He started listening instead of reading with other texts, even if they didn't have audiobook versions, after he found the text-to-speech function built into his computer's operating system. This is the computer speaking. This function was in the accessibility settings on his computer. It's housed in the language of disability. At the time, you know, five, six years ago, I was thinking, well, okay, um, does this mean I'm disabled? because I felt like my computer was telling me I have some kind of disability. For the record, Michael doesn't think he has a learning disability. He's just not a fast reader. But listening to the text, he discovered he could change the playback speed. One runs the risk of pausing as the principal... Go faster and faster and still understand what he was listening to. ...the new tactics of power, among which are to be included the new penal mechanisms. What had been his reading weakness was becoming his speed-listening secret weapon. Michael says there is a learning curve. You get used to faster and faster speech, little by little... Before long, two times speed was nothing for him. Even with Foucault, with fiction, he can now pull off three times with ease. Here's what that sounds like. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. Did you get all that? Michael says you could, one day. 
because I, I really kind of preach the message of text to speech to my colleagues who a lot of times, you know, already have PhDs, right? So they, they know how to read. But they're missing what's possible with listening. He feels like he has to be an evangelist for this way of processing information because there's this weird stigma like listening is less than reading. Why is somebody reading to you so much more different than reading to yourself inside of your head? It's a good question. One I asked Daniel T. Willingham, a psychologist at the University of Virginia. He applies neuroscience to K-12 education. There are some differences around the edges, but you know, listening to an audiobook and reading a print book are mostly the same experience. If you listen to War and Peace, you can brag about reading War and Peace. I wanted to talk to Dan because the study of reading has made up so much of his work. At school, reading is essentially how we learn how to learn. Before learning about science, history, or how Congress works, you gotta learn to read. It seems like a basic skill, but Daniel says for humans, this is a relatively new thing. Written language developed about 5,500 years ago in different parts of the world, but most people were still illiterate only a couple centuries ago. So there just has not been remotely enough time for specialized cognitive modules to have evolved to handle reading. So when you're learning how to read, you are basically using cognitive modules that evolved for a different purpose and kind of MacGyvering them to be applicable to this new task. Language, on the other hand, oral communication, listening and understanding words, that is an innate human skill. When it comes to reading comprehension, we use a lot of the same neurological hardware. Why would the mind completely duplicate the machinery necessary, if it could, uh, to understand written language and oral language when those two things are so similar? Before you can understand what you're reading as opposed to hearing, you have to kind of decode it. Look at the symbols on the page in the order that they're in and figure out what they represent. This uh, decoding process going from print on the page to uh, words in the mind uh, concerns hearing individual speech sounds. So the letter B, it goes with the sound B. And in order to understand that that letter goes with this individual speech sound, you have to be able to consciously hear the sound B. You can almost think of reading as a kind of artificial hearing we do in our heads. We don't actually hear the words on the page as we would a physical sound from someone talking. More, we hear them in our mind's ear, a process called audiation. You teach kids how to decode the code. You teach them what the sounds are. And that, that process of sort of talking to yourself as you're reading never fully goes away. He's talking about the way new readers will sound out the word. As you become a better reader, that process happens much faster without having to focus on individual bits. It's sort of like when you're looking at a horse, you don't say to yourself, well, okay, I see some legs and there's a tail there and there's a man. Let me sort of piece this all together. Well, that's consistent with that being a horse. You just sort of look at it and there's like a visual representation that tells you uh, this is a horse. That makes for faster reading, but... We are still sounding things out in our heads to a degree, even if we don't notice. An interesting study Daniel told me about showed that people had more difficulty reading tongue twisters versus randomized words, even if their tongues weren't actually doing anything. Reading tongue twisters, 
just silently in your head is harder than reading normal text. So how fast can we process information when we're reading or listening? Daniel says there are limits when it comes to reading quickly, because when you go very, very fast, what you're doing is actually skimming. It's probably going to be anywhere between 220, maybe as high as 300 words a minute. You can get them to go faster than that. But if you look at their eye fixations, they're fixating on fewer words and they're absorbing less information. Eye movement, the physical focusing on word after word becomes a hard speed limit. And as for speed listening, Daniel thinks the limit for most people is probably going to be around the two times mark, the average speaking speed limit, which is roughly 300 words a minute. The decline starts to accelerate. It's, it, you know, it's, you're no longer in a linear decline. Things are, the wheels are falling off, basically. But people are trying to push those boundaries. There's Michael, the PhD candidate, listening comfortably at three times speed. There are speed listening communities online going for 3.5 and higher. I even talked to the audiobook engineering people at Audible about this. They said that people who speed listen their app really step on the gas. Out of those speeding up audiobooks, there are far more 2x and 3x listeners compared to those just going for slightly faster, like 1.2 or 1.4. People are pushing the limits of the tech available to them. Uri Hansen, a neuroscientist at Princeton University, has studied the limits of our hardware, the brain, when it comes to compressed audio, speed listening. So basically, if I'm going to speak faster now, your brain is going to operate faster. If I'm going to speak more slowly, your brain is going to slow down. The brain speeds and slows processing all the time. This effect is probably most well-known in the context of very intense experiences. You've probably heard stories of things suddenly seeming to happen in slow motion, like, say, in the moments before a car accident. Which means that it's a really dynamic train. It doesn't care about the time units. It cares about the information all the time. More information, more processing speed. This dynamism, Uri and others think, is linked to the natural differences in speech speed among people. The fastest speakers on average talk about twice as fast as the slowest. There's a few different parts of the brain involved in listening to and understanding speech, and they all rev up to higher gears together. It's not perfect, though. The brain starts losing information when speech gets too fast. Uri says with practice, every part of the brain can get better at working faster, but he thinks there's probably a hard and fast limit for most people around the three times mark. I ask him what kind of potential he sees for this kind of thing. Efficiency is not everything in life. The question is, what will you lose, right? The gap between things might be, you know, when you go down the stairs from a meeting, it might be the most important part of the meeting. Like, if your mind doesn't have time to wander, if it's always hyper-focused on processing this word as part of this sentence, as part of this paragraph in a story about whatever, you'll lose those quiet aha moments that idle minds tend to cook up. Maybe the gap between words is the most important part of the lecture. It makes sense, especially if you're the type that tends to get up and go for a walk when you've hit some kind of problem you can't seem to solve. Things just come to you when your mind is quiet. I took all that to Michael, the PhD candidate. I asked him about the brain's need for a break, the value of gaps, the down the stairs moments. Oh yeah, I have a very blunt response to that. There is a pause button. That's really all I have to say about that. Well, not quite all he had to say. That is one of the 
things that I hear about whether or not text-to-speech is cheating or audiobooks is cheating. It's like, oh, it goes too fast. You can't, you know, take anything in. Well, you can pause it. For The Pulse, at whatever speed you're listening, I'm Jad Slayman. I'm Jad Slayman. I'm Jad Slayman. Lots of us have preferences when it comes to how we absorb information, whether it's listening, reading, or watching. But Jayatri Das from the Franklin Institute says that sometimes those preferences can become too restricting. I think what's dangerous then is when you take it too far and think that that's the only way that you can learn. And this has become kind of a common misconception in education where students are categorized into their quote-unquote learning styles um, and think that, oh, well, this is the only way in which, you know, I can learn successfully. And that ends up kind of pigeonholing people um, when, in fact, what we know from brain science is that the more parts of your brain that are engaged, the stronger the memory is to stick. And so evidence shows that, in fact, when students learn through multiple modalities, by doing things with their hands and learning things through reading and hearing things, everybody does better. So if I say to you, I process information better when I'm listening to it rather than reading it, what do you say to me? It might be that there's part of that environment that you listen in that helps you focus. It might be that that particular type of information is something that when you listen, you can absorb. But that doesn't necessarily mean that every kind of information is better for you when you're listening. So I shouldn't shy away from reading. Exactly. And might it be beneficial for me, even if I think, whew, reading is a little hard for me. Is it good for me to keep trying? Absolutely. And looking for different ways that information is presented, you know, in reading that maybe, you know, going to read on the internet <laughs> might not be the type of experience that you like, but maybe going to a museum and reading the labels there in the context of looking at something real, that's a different form of information that makes sense to you. It seems like we like having those kinds of categories, though, like I'm a so-and-so learner or I'm this kind of person. I think the human brain likes shortcuts because <laughs> there's so much information out there that, you know, whether it's for yourself or whether it's for other people, coming up with those categories is a way to interact with somebody more quickly. That's Jayatri Das, chief bioscientist at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. We're talking about how we process information and understand it. When you're reading a book or an essay, an article, how do you extract meaning from what you're reading? Find the main idea, connect different plot lines, read between the lines and figure out if the author is maybe hinting at something. It's a set of skills that's often summarized as comprehension, and it gets a lot of attention in American elementary and middle schools. It's practiced and tested in a very specific way. Kids will read a text. It can be about anything. Maybe it's a story about school. Miss Johnson is my favorite teacher, and I really enjoy her class, Mario told his mother. Or a description of why chess is a great game. 
Chess teaches how to think ahead, how to plan, and how to be systematic in an approach to problem solving. If we know better how to use these skills, we can use the same techniques to solve math problems. Is there any one of us who couldn't improve his or her math skills? And then the kids have to answer questions. In the sentence, the word "enjoy" means like, hear, notice, or save. What does the narrator mean by? Is there any one of us who couldn't improve his or her math skills? These tests are designed to check if children understand vocabulary, if they are able to find the main idea in a paragraph, or to make an inference. To some extent, what is being taught here is really well. It's really largely illusory, I would argue. That's education journalist Natalie Wexler. She's the author of *The Knowledge Gap*. She says there are a bunch of problems with this approach. The most basic one is if you don't have the background knowledge and vocabulary to understand the reading passage, you are not able to demonstrate your skill at figuring out what a particular word means in this context or making inferences or whatever. How well kids do on these tests can affect not just their own trajectories as students. Test scores can be tied to school funding in some districts, even teacher salaries. But Natalie says these tests don't actually measure how well a child can read or process information. I would say they're not measuring a skill or skills at all. They're essentially measuring what you know, how much you know. Maybe about the topic you're reading about, or maybe your general academic knowledge and vocabulary. And there's a, a cognitive scientist named Daniel Willingham at the University of Virginia who's written a lot about this issue, and he's called standardized reading comprehension tests knowledge tests in disguise. And I would agree with that. How so? Give me an example of that. Even on a third grade reading test, there's a, a sample item about the Inuit, and. To an educated adult, it looks pretty straightforward, but it assumes knowledge of words like Inuit, caribou, even in just that one paragraph. And a lot of third graders will not be familiar with many of those terms. Some will, and they tend to be the third graders from more highly educated families who've been exposed to that kind of knowledge and vocabulary. But for the other third graders,、um, they really rely on school for that kind of knowledge and vocabulary. And unfortunately, in our current system, they're the least likely to get it at school. And I guess for kids, it could also really be a message like "you're not good at this," which then could translate into "you're not good at reading," "you're not good at language." So it could also be closing off a path. Absolutely. I mean, that is one of the reasons I feel so much urgency about this issue. It's not just the tests, and and by the way, those end of the year state tests—they're just the tip of the iceberg. Schools give tests throughout the year that determine, you know, what reading group a child is going to be put in, and and that their individual reading level could be years below their grade level. And kids are hyper aware of where they stand in that sort of reading pecking order. Natalie says because there is so much emphasis on standardized testing for reading and also math, other subjects like social studies, science, and the arts have taken a back seat. She thinks that's the wrong way to go because those kinds of classes build more of a general knowledge base. And through building that knowledge, they will acquire more general academic vocabulary, and eventually that should equip them to. 
read and understand any, you know, quote-unquote grade-level passage that is thrown at them on a standardized reading test. Tapping into that kind of knowledge base is what allows you to do well with comprehension. She says it relates to something called cognitive load. And it has to do with working memory, which is the aspect of, of our consciousness where we're taking in new information and trying to make sense of it. And the important thing to know about working memory is that it's very limited. It can only handle maybe about five items for about 20 seconds before things start to get forgotten. And the more you're juggling in working memory, the less cognitive capacity you have for things like comprehension. And the way around the constraints on working memory is through long-term memory. So if you can just withdraw information from long-term memory because you have it stored there, you don't have to juggle it in working memory and that frees up more space. So the more, you, you know, either knowledge of the topic or academic knowledge and vocabulary you have in long-term memory, the greater your capacity will be in working memory for just taking new information in and making sense of it. So to go back to our example with the Inuit and the caribou, if I already know, oh, Inuit is a people and a caribou is a type of animal. Mm -hmm. If I already know all of that from my long-term memory bank, then I'm only juggling figuring out what's the main idea here, what's the caribou doing, right? as opposed to figuring out what the heck is a caribou and what is this whole thing about. Right. And in fact, there's a sort of iconic uh, experiment that was done in the late 1980s that showed this in the context of baseball. It's called the Baseball Study. Um, it has come to be called the baseball study. And the researchers wanted to figure out what is more important to reading comprehension. Is it general reading skill or ability, or is it knowledge of the topic? And they were doing this with 7th and 8th graders. They chose the topic of baseball because they figure there are a lot of kids out there who are not generally good readers, but they do know a lot about baseball. And they took, I think it was 64 of these kids, and they divided them into four groups depending on how well they scored on a standardized reading comprehension test and how much they knew about baseball. And then they gave them a passage to read describing a baseball game and tested their comprehension. And they found that what really made the difference was knowledge of baseball. In fact, the kids who had scored low on the standardized test but knew a lot about baseball, they did a lot better than the kids who had scored high on that standardized test but didn't know much about baseball. And that, that experiment has been done in other contexts and the same result has always been found. Natalie says there are educators who are pushing for different types of curricula, teaching that is rich in content and allows kids to spend more time on different subjects, really get into them, rather than practicing a specific skill. Teachers reading aloud from a series of books or texts on the topic to the entire class, and ideally books or texts that are more sophisticated than many of those kids might read on, be able to read on their own because they can take in more sophisticated information through listening and discussion than through their own reading. She told me there are more schools that are now adopting this approach. Natalie Wexler is an education writer. Her book is called The Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Cause of America's Broken Education System and How to Fix It. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. Do you ever have a moment when somebody is talking to you and then you realize you have no idea what they said? Pulse reporter Liz Tung is here. And Liz, you told me this happens to you a lot. 
Yeah. So in certain situations, I have a real problem understanding what other people are saying. And for whatever reason, it seems to happen the most with my husband, Wooly. How often would you say I ask you to repeat yourself? Um, a couple of times a week. Not quite every day, but definitely a couple of times a week. I actually thought it was every day. Well, sometimes I just get so annoyed that we don't talk every day. <laughs> so did you think maybe your hearing was going bad or you needed hearing aids or something like that? Yeah, I thought that for a while. I actually tested my hearing several times online and my hearing seems to be totally normal. So it feels like I'm just not hearing words for some reason. I asked Willie if he'd noticed any patterns about what causes it. He said it seems to happen more when I'm distracted, which makes sense. And he also wondered if it had something to do with his accent. He's from the UK. But I told him I even struggle sometimes to hear other Americans. Like on Netflix, I keep the captions on all the time. So why do you miss it? Is it because you're like you're thinking about something that you've just seen or do you just your brain just kind of cut out or? Um... So what did Wooly think the problem was? <laughs> I asked him that. Um, I'll just let you hear what he said. So what do you think? Do, like, if you had to take a guess, do you think there's something physically wrong with my hearing? Or do you think that there is, I'm having a problem, like, processing what I'm hearing? It's your brain pedal. <laughs> your brain, not your hearing. That's the idea. So I started looking around for something that looks like hearing loss but isn't. And I came across this researcher, Lindsay Jorgensen. All right. I have a pretty loud voice, so that works too. Um, Lindsay is an audiologist who teaches at the University of South Dakota and works with patients who are hard of hearing. She first came across this issue in 2007 when her husband Kyle got back from his deployment in Afghanistan. And I noticed that he had hearing loss particularly in loud situations like a restaurant, when we would be anywhere like the zoo or something like that. So I brought him in and I put him in the test booth and he had perfectly normal hearing on that traditional push the button when you hear the beep exam. Soon, Lindsay realized it wasn't just her husband. She worked at the local VA hospital and started noticing more and more veterans who insisted they had hearing loss, but tests found nothing. There was even some suspicion that they might have been faking it. And we thought, well, maybe it was for, you know, a compensation and pension workman's comp claim against the Department of Defense. When in reality, I really think that it was much, much more than that. That they are experiencing hearing loss, but our traditional testing is not capturing that. As it turned out, Lindsay wasn't the only one noticing this problem. In a study published in 2012, researchers at the Portland VA made a big discovery that veterans who'd been exposed to high-intensity blasts on the order of improvised explosive devices and rocket-propelled grenades were way more likely to have a condition called auditory processing disorder. Auditory processing disorder is very controversial topic in the field of audiology because not all audiologists really believe that it's an auditory problem. This is Eric Gallen. He was one of the authors of that study. 
And he says auditory processing disorders blur the line between the mechanics of hearing and the neurological process of understanding information. With hearing loss, audiologists tend to focus on the cochlea. This is hollow spiral-shaped bone in the inner ear that transforms sound into electrical signals that then travel to our brains. From an anatomical perspective, the cochlea is the last stop on the hearing highway. Except, Eric says, it's not. It turns out that there are still many, many stages, seven or eight, between the auditory nerve and understanding speech. Auditory processing disorders refer to any failure along that pathway, from our ears into our brains. And so you can argue about where does hearing end and cognition begin, but as a cognitive psychologist, I think of the entire system as listening, hearing, attending, being aware of the auditory world, communicating. These are the things that we want to do as human beings, and any patient that's having trouble I want to figure out why. Eric says this type of problem could be related to traumatic brain injuries. He says it's also been observed in people with concussions. But how do you figure out where exactly the problem lies? Which step between hearing sound, sending signals to the brain, and processing the information has been compromised? This was the big question that researchers like Lindsay and Eric wanted to get to the bottom of. What they needed was a better test one that didn't stop at the ear, but ventured into the brain. Now, you've probably experienced traditional hearing tests. You usually sit in a quiet space and push a button when you hear a tone. But Aaron Seitz, another researcher who works with Eric, says this is not a great way to figure out whether someone has an auditory processing disorder. It's in a very simple environment where you're able to spend all of your attention resources trying to do well in this test. You think about talking with someone at a restaurant or a Zoom meeting. There are other people talking. There's other noises. People are moving about. Nowadays in Zoom meetings, maybe you have a pet or a child that wants your attention while you're trying to focus on this conversation. And the complexity is so much different than that audiological testing suite. These tests only screen for problems with your actual ears, not problems with how we process sound. There are tests that were created in the 1970s specifically to test for auditory processing disorders, but most audiologists aren't super familiar with them. What they needed, Eric, Aaron, and Lindsay believe, was a test that anyone could take that could not only confirm whether or not somebody has an auditory processing disorder, but could actually zero in on where the problem resides. A few years ago, Eric and Aaron had an idea for something that could do all of that and more. You've probably heard of brain training games. A few years ago, Aaron worked on one that actually helped improve people's eyesight. Now he and Eric wanted to do the same thing for hearing. Okay, the game is called Find the Sound. I gave the game a shot. It's available on the Apple App Store if you want to look it up. So basically, you're a little orb of light traveling through a forest. Every so often, a green squiggly line appears that you have to dodge. And so what happens is I get a tone in either my left ear or my right ear. And if I get a tone in my left ear, then I got to swerve to the left to avoid it. If I get a tone in my right ear, then I swerve to the right. So if I'm right, then I successfully clear the green squiggle. If I'm wrong, then I get this like red lightning bolt. That was from the left. And started out easy enough. 
That was from the left. Right. Left. But soon, it got harder. Ah. They're waiting until the last second to make the beeps now, so it's... You have less time to react. Nope. Right. Those tones might not sound all that exciting, but the cool thing is Eric and Aaron developed them specifically to stimulate different filters our brains have for processing different sounds. So for instance, say you have one filter that listens out for high screechy sounds, and maybe you have another that processes low bassy sounds. If you miss either the high shrieky tones or the low bassy tones in the game, then that helps scientists identify which filters are weak or broken. The game then tailors the challenges to help you exercise the filters that aren't performing so well. It's actually kind of fun. And Eric and Aaron say that's the goal, to provide a workout for people's hearing that isn't stressful or anxiety-inducing, but they hope kind of fun. The game's still in development. So far, around 100 people have played the game across different versions. It's a small number, but the results have been encouraging. They found that after about 20 sessions of gameplay, people's hearing was improved compared with a control group. Lindsay Jorgensen, the audiologist we talked to earlier, says she's recommended the game to some of her patients. And she's also developed other strategies for helping to rehab veterans with auditory processing disorder, lots of which she's tested on her husband. Okay, now we're going to do a few sentences, okay? Okay. This is one exercise that Lindsay's husband, Kyle, has nicknamed the hell test. Hence, Kyle's less than enthusiastic responses. It involves listening to somebody saying something while there's a lot of chatter in the background. Here's an easy one. I could hear another conversation through the cordless phone. I could hear another conversation through the cordless phone. Followed by a not-so-easy person. He was an ordinary person who did extraordinary things. And another one that's even worse. She relied on him for transportation. She relied on him for transportation. I hate even hearing this secondhand. It kind of makes you realize how frustrating it must be for people who struggle this way every day. And in fact, Lindsay says empathy. Maybe even more than all these exercises and tests can make a big difference in how veterans hear on a daily basis. My job is about 50 percent hearing aids, 50 percent marital counseling. Right. So like or relationship counseling. So, I mean, I think that when it helps the most is when it is a combination of the veteran doing something like these kind of games And then also with the significant other or primary communication partner, really understanding good communication techniques. Things like talking more slowly, giving context, introducing a topic before you launch into something, making sure the other person can see their face and lips as they talk. I brought all this back to my husband, Wooly, to see what he thinks. Well, so it's all on me then. So, yeah, like, whilst that's good, it takes a lot of practice to do that and be kind of cognizant of it when you're doing it. And I think really one of the things alongside that, one of the key things for me is just patience. Not getting angry or, you know, like joking about it, making light of it and stuff like that, but patience and, and just trying to find the ways to communicate is the, the best thing, I think. 
That story was reported by Liz Tung. We're talking about processing information. And Liz just mentioned a game that trains your hearing in a way that promotes better understanding. A lot of people are interested in optimizing how they process information. So I asked Jayatri Das about that. She is the chief bioscientist at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. People are always interested in boosting their brain power. There are all kinds of like vitamins that are marketed toward that cause. People do crossword puzzles and brain fitness stuff. Can we do that? Can we boost our processing power? The danger of using a particular task Mm -hmm. (laughs) to boost your brain power is that you're very likely to get better only at that particular task. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) But there are general principles about how to keep your brain healthy and really extend your power to continue learning new things. Absolutely, there's a nutrition element to that. You know, your Mediterranean diet, different brain foods like antioxidants, those do help at a biochemical level Mm -hmm. in kind of keeping your brain healthy. And exercise, of course, is something that has a lot of data behind it to, to keep your brain healthy. But in terms of boosting how you think, it's really about continuing to challenge yourself and exercising your brain, too. So it's not necessarily doing crossword puzzles is the thing, but how do you learn new things? How do you meet new people? Try new experiences. Just keeping your brain active is really the key. I'll give you an example from my own life. I learned how to sew as as an adult. It really challenges a part of my brain that I don't use on a day-to-day basis. It's spatial thinking. It's very tactile. Just the feeling of fabric and the texture of fabric, it makes me notice things around me in a different way. Making an intention to learn something new, come up with a different experience that exercise is a different part of your brain. Figure out what works for you. There's no one thing that's going to work for everybody. And it's interesting because if you work a lot by processing information through a computer in some way or by talking to people and you're not working with your hands, I find that aspect of like actually processing information with your hands is a new challenge and it's it's fun. Also, it calms you down in a way. It really does, right? It's thinking about, you know, these different sensory inputs and how they might, you know, make your brain work in ways that, you, that you're not used to on a daily basis. Jayatri Das is chief bioscientist at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. It's a science museum and a center for education and research. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can check us out wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Jad Slayman. Sojourner Ahebe is our health equity fellow. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Nicole Curry is our associate producer. Lindsay Lazarski is our producer. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Dana-Farber scientists laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, new drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. 
Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.